This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Open Primaries, Talk Poverty Radio, Decode DC, Democracy Now!, The David Pakman Show, Best of Left Activism Today with Democracy Awakening, Brave New Films, and Last Week Tonight. The American people are fed up with partisan politics. In a recent Gallup poll, Americans named dissatisfaction with government as the number one problem facing the country today. Americans now believe our government is more of a problem than the economy, education, and terrorism. To change the way our elected officials work for the American people, we must change how they are elected. We need to start with the first round of voting, the primaries. Thanks to gerrymandering and other factors, the primary election is often the only election that matters. In many states, less than 5% of the electorate are actually deciding who represents 100% of that district or state. That means our elected officials are actually chosen by an increasingly tiny, often incredibly partisan slice of the electorate. Today, 42% of Americans identify themselves as independents. Most states exclude independent voters from voting in the first round, the primaries. And in states that do allow them to vote in primaries, they are forced to temporarily join a party that they don't believe in. A top two nonpartisan primary eliminates party control in favor of a single nonpartisan primary open to all voters and all candidates. There is no longer a Democratic primary and a Republican primary. There is one primary open to all voters and all candidates. The top two vote getters, regardless of party, then move forward to the general election. With nonpartisan primaries, everyone gets to vote. The winners are more accountable because they have to speak to all the voters in order to get elected. Elections are more competitive. Legislators are encouraged to work across party lines and focus on issues we care about. Top two nonpartisan primaries are now used in California, Nebraska, and Washington. You've probably already voted using top two. Most municipal elections nationwide use this simple nonpartisan system. Today, activists in all 50 states are working to bring this crucial system change to their state. The movement is growing. Join us and help us create a government that truly is by and for the people. They can't hold us, control us, they ain't on us. You notice the paint's thrown up and written up on the wall for all. Break us up into components with formidable opponents. For put together, we're just way too raw, strong. From the night to the morning to tonight's how we wanted it. Said our fingertips, close your fists, knock down the door. They can't do nothing about it. They only go talk about it. We all about it now. Watch us change the world. We the people created powerful and strong and On today's show, we're commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. I'm now joined by Michelle Jawando, Vice President for Legal Progress at the Center for American Progress, who wrote a recent op-ed titled, 50 Years After the Voting Rights Act, Courts Play a Key Role in Protecting Access to the Ballot. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me, Tracy. I'm glad that we could have you um, back for another um, important show dedicated to talking about courts. And you know, as we talk about the 50th anniversary, can you give us some historic context of you know what this means? So on tomorrow, uh, we are excited because we are commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. 
And for your listeners, um, the Voting Rights Act is considered kind of one of the pinnacle pieces, landmark legislation, really, um, on advancing both representation in government and all levels of government, local, state and federal, um, and also making the access to the ballot accessible for millions of Americans who previously were shut out of the system for years and years. So as a part of really the civil rights movement um, of the 1950s and 60s, one of the hallmarks of that work was how do we make it possible for people to get access to the ballot. So we've all heard, or for some of us who've seen Selma, there's that riveting um, um, scene where the Oprah Winfrey's character goes to the courthouse to register to vote, and she asks answers one of the questions, and then the clerk responds back to her, well, name all of the circuit court judges in the state. And while that may seem like it was a fictionalized moment, that is exactly, in fact, what happened to African-Americans across this country during the 50s and 60s, if they even were able to make it to the clerk courthouse to try and register to vote. And so a key component of the Voting Rights Act was how do you open up the franchise and make it truly accessible to all of America's citizens? So one of the things that uh, the Voting Rights Act did, because it was so successful, is it looked at states who had histories of discrimination, of voter suppression, these legacies of poll tax and literacy tests, and they said, if you want to make changes to the franchise, to voting in your state, you have to get it pre-cleared or send it up to the Department of Justice to make sure that those changes don't disproportionately affect certain communities. This was a hallmark and a bipartisan kind of notion for decades. Um, even as recently as 2006, we saw a, a huge, massive bipartisan support for the Voting Rights Act as we know it. And without question, Barack Obama and countless members of the Congressional Black Caucus and the Hispanic Caucus, the Asian American Caucus now were able to both make it into Congress because so many people had the option and were able to actually vote. And I'm glad that that you brought up that that scene, because I think sometimes people think that some of the stories are you know maybe exaggerated. I know that my my own grandfather fought in World War II, landed on the beaches of Normandy, but was turned away from the poles because he was black. You know, so he could fight for his country, but he couldn't um, participate in in the electoral process. But you know, we fast forward to 2013, and we saw the Supreme Court said, well, you know, we don't have that level. Of racism anymore, so we we don't need to have the same levels of protections. Can you explain what that court case um, uh, meant and how it's affecting voters? So that was that case that you referenced, uh, Shelby County. Um, in 2013, the Supreme Court basically said that um, things had changed and states no longer um, who had to kind of go through this preclearance process had to go and do that. Um, they didn't have to run their voting rights changes before the Department of Justice. And within 48 hours of that ruling, we saw 
over 10 states move swiftly to make it that much harder for residents of their state to vote. So I'm talking about states like Texas that moved to um, to put forth one of the most strict voter ID bills in the nation. In North Carolina, there's a major uh, lawsuit that's taking place in the courts there because there were hundreds of thousands of people in the very last election who were kicked off the voter rolls because they didn't have access to the ballots and they didn't have all of the information that North Carolina moved um, when they put in a very suppressive voter uh, ID bill. So it, it essentially becomes a modern day poll tax. Exactly. And so... One question, though, I have is if if the Supreme Court was able to say that, you know, there's not enough racism to have the Voting Rights um, Act in place, but we saw that the Supreme Court um, upheld that we should be able to bring disparate impact charges when it comes to housing. It, it's, you know, how can the court say, well, in some cases there is racism, in some cases there isn't. It, it seems weird to have the court dictate an interpretation of our racial progress in this country. That's a, a a great question. I mean, I think there are a few things at play here. So often I find when you look at the opinions of the court, they don't necessarily would like to almost imagine that we have dealt with this quote unquote race issue. Um, and so they they tend to have an issue, generally speaking, with saying that this particular person or persons are racist. Right. Um, and I think that has to do with kind of our difficult racial history and the way that we think about race in this country. And so you can see almost kind of the schizophrenia in, in the positions that the court takes in Shelby County, the Voting Rights Act was so successful that the chief justice said, well, we shouldn't do it anymore because it was so successful. You have greater representation. You have more people voting than ever um, of all backgrounds. And this was one of the things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg questioned and challenged. She said, should we stop doing something that has been effective because it's been effective? It would almost seem, you know, um, as the old kind of adage, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because the Voting Rights Act was so successful, we're throwing it out. In the case of the housing um, decision that recently came down, Justice Kennedy, who's often looked at as one of the swing votes on the court, he didn't necessarily make his decision looking at race. What he looked at is kind of what is the kind of long term view and history of the way we think about housing. But he didn't make it necessarily with this racial justice lens. And so it's important for kind of advocates and those of us to recognize that we have to use as many different um, uh, strategies as we can to make our arguments and say, listen, there are a lot of people who could be negatively affected by these decisions and disproportionately there are certain communities that are impacted and voting without question is one of them.
Every 10 years, when there's a new census, politicians look at the map of congressional districts in each state and they go, hmm, does that make any sense? And there are two main rules that guide the answers to that question. One goes back to the Constitution. It says that each federal congressional district in a state should have an equal number of people living in it. That means everybody's got to have basically the same number. The second rule came much later, and that was a result of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And it says that you can't have all your districts drawn in a way that denies minority voters a chance to, and I'm quoting, participate in the political process and elect representatives of their choice, end quote. That basically means that if you do, whether you mean to or not, a new district can be drawn to make sure that minorities have a chance to elect the people that they want. And in South Carolina and in 36 other states, all of this redrawing, it's all done at the state house, And it's all done by the politicians. And I am still incensed when I think about it. In South Carolina, we had the Democratic Caucus, the Legislative Black Caucus, that carved out districts that were good for them. Okay? One more little thing. What Gilda is describing is called gerrymandering. Very simply, this is drawing boundaries of a state or congressional district so that you give advantage to one party or the other. Gerrymandering is how politicians stamp out competition. They shut out the other side. And that's called a safe seat. And Gilda says that's exactly what happened in the last time that South Carolina legislators, Republicans, and Democrats got a chance to create the new 7th Congressional District. They got a brand new district because South Carolina's population grew rapidly over the previous 10 years. In all the years I've been here, in every redistricting, every reapportionment, session, whatever, we as Democrats and as a black caucus have always objected and fought the maps because they were not fair, because they packed people in districts. The last time uh, members of the Democratic caucus went into the map room and Worked and drew a little, drew their district, drew out people who they thought might run against them, put a little more here, a little more there. Black caucus did the same. I drew a map which would have allowed the 7th Congressional District to be a district that a Democrat could win. It was like 44%. Uh, that was not supported by the current congressman of South Carolina, the 6th Congressional District Congressman, had the chair of judiciary tell me on the floor, well, you know, Ms. Cobb Hunter, the congressman doesn't support your plan, so why should we? Now keep in mind that the congressman that she's talking about, the one from the 6th District, that's Jim Clyburn, and he is a black Democrat. So the final drawing of that 7th District only included about 30% of minorities. And the seat ended up going to the Republicans. And here's, here's what I'm saying, Jimmy. 
I just believe strongly that what we did the last time with redistricting was put that final nail in our own coffin because as a Democratic caucus, we didn't fight. We didn't, as my grandma used to say, didn't say a mumbling word. The legislative black caucus didn't say a mumbling word because what? Individuals had gone in, drawn districts that they felt safe in, that they knew they could win in, and here we are. And so what happens? You get safe districts, you get an increased number of black caucus members, and you lose power and influence. So to summarize that, the minority districts in South Carolina, the, the black districts in yeah. South Carolina, that is the only minority that's represented, right. Right. the black districts in South Carolina were drawn by black folk, by black Black, black, black South Carolinians who mm-hmm. are members of the House mm-hmm. and the Senate, mm-hmm. safe districts, and y- your counterparts who don't have that tan. Were they like, were happy to help. They were just real happy to help draw these black districts because we bleached theirs. And here's the problem with this whole gerrymandering stuff, in my view. What you wind up with is a representative or a senator who caters to a small group of people. When you have influence districts as an elected official, you've got to kind of weigh everybody's opinion. You've got to be concerned what everybody thinks. On August 6, 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Voting Rights Act, which has been under attack ever since. In 2013, the Supreme Court struck down crucial components of the act in a case called Shelby County, Alabama versus Holder, when it ruled states with histories of voting-related racial discrimination no longer had to pre-clear changes to their voting laws with the federal government. Immediately following the Shelby ruling, several states passed laws that made it harder for people to vote. The 2016 race is the first presidential election election in half a century without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. To talk more about the potential impact of voting rights in this election, we're joined by Ari Berman, who covers voting rights for the nation. His recent piece headlined 63,756 Reasons Racism is Still Alive in South Carolina. His new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Good to see you again, Amy. Um, so talk about this 63,000 plus reasons racism is still alive in South well, Carolina. Well, South Carolina has a new voter ID law, and that number, 63,000, is the number of minority voters without ID who could not vote uh, under the law unless they have an excuse for why they don't possess uh, this ID. And the voter ID law in South Carolina was passed in a very racially charged anti-Obama atmosphere. Members of the South Carolina Legislative Black Caucus walked out when this bill was considered. This was 
passed overwhelmingly by white Republicans. One of the authors of the law received... He was one of the people who walked out, Reverend uh, Clementa Pinckney, who was gunned down last June. Yes, I believe so. And one of the bill's sponsors received an email from a supporter of the voter ID law that said if African Americans were paid for voter ID, it would be like, quote, a swarm of bees going after a watermelon. Very racially charged language. And the author of the voter ID law, a South Carolina Republican, said, amen, Thank you for your support of voter ID. So that was the atmosphere in which the voter ID law was passed. About 7% of registered voters don't have a government-issued ID. Minority voters were 20% more likely than whites to not have this. And so this is the climate heading into 2016. So that is South Carolina. Talk about Alabama, Georgia, Arkansas, um, the states that are now going to be voting on Tuesday. Yeah, well, five of the states that are voting on Super Tuesday have tough new voting restrictions uh, in place. You look at places like Alabama, Texas, Virginia, they have strict voter ID laws in place for the first presidential cycle. Uh, Many, many voters could be impacted. You look at Texas, for example, 600,000 registered voters there don't have a government-issued ID. Blacks and Hispanics are twice as likely, two to three times as likely as whites to not have one. In Texas, you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID. So this is a really big issue. Most of the media is not covering this. It hasn't come up. The issue of voting rights has not come up in 16 presidential debates. There's been so much focus on who people are going to vote for, but we haven't been asking another question, which is, will people be able to vote in the first place? Will every eligible voter be able to cast a ballot? So what do you feel uh, needs to happen at this point to guarantee people the right to vote? Well, I think there's a number of things that have to happen. It's interesting. Last week, the Congress honored the foot soldiers of the Selma movement, people like Congressman John Lewis, who fought and nearly died for voting rights. But that same Congress will not restore the Voting Rights Act. And as you mentioned earlier, we're heading into the first presidential cycle in 15, in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. What that means in practice is that 16 states have new voting restrictions in place for the first presidential cycle in 2016. So it's critically urgent to restore the Voting Rights Act and then make it easier to vote in a whole lot of different ways. Things like early voting and same-day voter registration and automatic voter registration to get a lot more people involved in the political process. Because right now, a quarter of Americans, 50 million people, are not even registered to vote and won't be participating in any way in the 2016 election. Now, since this is the first time a lot of this is going into effect, how do people know what they're being told at the polls is right? Like when they say, I didn't need an ID before, what are they supposed to do? They just walk away? Well, this is the problem here. In South Carolina, for example, they said you need photo ID to vote. You need one of five forms of photo ID to vote. But you didn't actually need that because if you didn't have the ID, for example, you could sign an affidavit, cast a provisional ballot and still vote. But the problem is the state was not telling voters this. So there was a lot of confusion and people were staying home. And you look at the fact that 160,000 fewer Democrats voted in 2016 than in 2008 in the Democratic primary. There could be a whole lot of reasons for that. But there are certainly some people that didn't show up because of the voter ID law that thought their votes wouldn't be counted. Even those people who are voting without ID, they're now casting provisional ballots. That takes a while to be counted. And just think back to 2000, Amy, in the Florida election. 537 votes was the margin of victory for George W. Bush about Al Gore. We're talking about many, 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 many more people now impacted by these new laws. So I'm very, very concerned that in the close election, these laws could make a difference. So talk about the candidates' positions on voting rights. For example, uh, Florida Senator Marco Rubio. 
Well, the Democrats have been much, much better than the Republicans on this issue. There's been a huge gap. Rubio is someone, the supposed moderate establishment candidate in the race. He has supported cutbacks to early voting in Florida. He has supported supported efforts to purge the voting rolls. Uh, he has supported strict voter, voter ID laws. When he was asked by a voter in Iowa about six-hour lines in Miami on Election Day 2012, Rubio responded, well, that was only on Election Day, which was a crazy comment because, yes, the longest lines usually do occur on Election Day. But in Florida, because they cut back on early voting, there were long lines all the way through the process. And President Obama said on Election Night 2012, we have to fix that, pointing specifically about at Florida. So Rubio clearly has not learned anything from the debacle on voting rights in that state in 2012 and in 2000 and all the things that have happened in the past. Well, Texas Governor Ted Cruz has stayed, of course, uh, in Super Tuesday. Ted Cruz has been one of the worst Republicans on the issue of voting rights. He supports strict voter ID laws. He supported the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. He wants you to show proof of citizenship to register to vote. So have to have a birth certificate or a passport when you're registering to vote, which many, many people uh, don't have. And I wrote an article for the nation recently that basically said Ted Cruz is leading the way when it comes to making it harder to vote. But all of the candidates themselves have supported uh, tough restrictions. You look at Jeff Sessions, who just endorsed Donald Trump, the first senator, as you mentioned, who endorsed Donald Trump. Jeff Sessions was someone who, as a U.S. attorney in Alabama, falsely targeted black activists for voter fraud. He called the NAACP a communist organization. He called a U.S. attorney in Alabama boy. This is someone with a very long history of not only racially charged remarks, but of supporting things like gutting the Voting Rights Act. And this is now the face of the Republican Party. Ted Cruz, Jeff Sessions, Donald Trump, this is the face of the Republican Party so right now. So let's talk Donald Trump. Speaking at a rally in New Hampshire last month, he said that the voting system is out of control. Look, you got to have real security with the voting system. This voting system is out of control. You have people, in my opinion, that are voting many, many times. They don't want security. They don't want cards. That's Donald Trump. Well, there's no evidence that people are voting many, many times, as Trump said. You look at voter impersonation, which is the kind of thing a voter ID law would stop. There have been only 31 cases of voter impersonation since 2000 out of a billion votes cast. So this has been a red herring. This narrative of voter fraud has been drummed up to build consensus for policies that make it harder for certain people to vote. It's been a manufactured controversy. The real fraud is the fact that all of these voters are going to the polls and facing new restrictions for the first time that are unnecessary, that are burdensome, and that are discriminatory. Uh, prisoners, um, the rights of people who have been in prison or on parole or on probation or who are completely done with the criminal justice system in this country. It's a huge issue. More than 5 million Americans can't vote because of felon disenfranchisement laws, including one in 13 African Americans. So when you talk about the criminal justice system, you talk about Black Lives Matter, there's a huge piece in terms of voting rights that relates to all of these issues. Uh, voter disenfranchisement is another legacy of Jim Crow that we are still wrestling with today. I mean, Bernie Sanders will be uh, celebrating Super Tuesday in his home state of Vermont, where prisoners in prison can actually vote. Well, and Vermont has some of the best laws in the country. If you look at, they have same-day voter registration, for example, uh, that increases voter turnout by up to 10%. So there are states with much better election laws that are voting on Super Tuesday, like Minnesota, like Vermont. Unfortunately, places like Texas, Alabama, they are moving in a very different direction. How do people who have a record find out, are they able to vote? 
Well, the laws are different in, in, in different places, and, and some people have their voting rights restored, and they don't even know about it. So they have to, there has to be much better outreach to these communities, for example. Maryland just became a state that allows you to vote if you are on parole. Uh, so that's one of those places where the, the word needs to get out now that the law has changed. But most people can't follow the intricacies of voting rights. They don't know. They're not election law experts. They don't know when the law changes, particularly people that just get out of prison and are wrestling with a whole number of issues. So I think it would be great if we had standardized laws in this country, if when people serve their time, uh, they were able to vote everywhere. I think that makes a lot of common sense. Unfortunately, that's not the system we have right now. Ari Berman, I want to thank you for being with us. Ari Berman covers voting rights for the nation. His latest book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Today's episode is sponsored by Harry's. They've taken the shaving industry by storm after their founders had a couple of stark realizations. The first is that buying razors at a pharmacy is a pain because the blades are often locked behind plastic with little alarms set to go off if you try to open them without permission. But the other is that manufacturing super high quality razor blades just isn't that expensive. Therefore, those prices that the giant companies are charging are nothing short of obscene. Harry's started making their blades in a high-tech German factory and discovered that they were so affordable and so high quality that they decided to just buy the factory altogether and continue to pass on those savings to their customers. I've been a loyal customer for over a year now, and I'm still totally happy with the great shave and all the money I've been saving. So they don't really do discounts because their prices are already really low, but they are offering a special deal for you on your first order. Harry's will give you $5 off when you use the promo code BEST at checkout. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter the code BEST at checkout. Make a stand, make a stand, make a choice, make a choice, shout it loud, shout it I'm joined today by Lawrence Norden, who is Deputy Director of the Democracy Program at NYU Law School's Brennan Center for Justice. There's a new study from the Brennan Center for Justice on American voting machines and yet again, Lawrence, warnings as to why we need to be really concerned about the current electronic voting machines that are out there. For people who may not know, let's start at the most basic. How many different types of electronic voting machines are being used across the country right now? Uh, well, the answer is probably dozens. I, they fall into two uh, main categories, though. Um, one are uh, what are called direct recording electronic machines, and these are uh, touchscreen machines some people may be familiar with. Uh, most of them date back to technology from the 1990s, so they're not the kind of uh, like iPads that we might be familiar with today. They're similar to kind of an ATM machine, um, and those are where you, you vote directly on the screen in terms of choosing candidates. Um, slightly more common are what are known as optical scan machines, um, these are machines that read uh, ballots that voters fill out. So you fill out uh, a, a ballot, you, you fill in the bubbles the way you would in any kind of like Scantron standardized uh, test um, or other kinds of uh, paper uh, documents that people fill out. And then the machine uh, reads that ballot. Um, it, it's scanned. It may have some messages on it for the voter to tell them how they voted. Um, but that's also a a kind of computer uh, that reads the votes. 
And what are the are the concerns with each of the two types uh, similar, or are they different concerns? There are certainly different concerns um, in, in that the technology is a little bit different. So um, when optical scan machines fail, uh, you still have a paper ballot, um, and if there are good procedures in place. Um, even if the machine isn't working, people can still vote. That might create some slightly longer lines, but um, you're not going to be turning people away while you're trying to fix the machines. For for uh, DREs, direct recording electronic machines, um, if the machine isn't working, uh, you're going to need to come up with an alternative way for people to vote. Hopefully there will be some paper ballots available at the polling place for people to vote on uh, while those machines are being fixed. But, you know, both of these sets of machines, for the most part around the country, uh, uh, were purchased soon after uh, the uh, 2000 election. A lot of people remember that was kind of a disaster of an election at the presidential level. Yeah. Um, uh, the country decided that we needed to replace uh, punch card machines, which were used at the time, and, and, and lever machines to a lesser extent. Um, and both sets of machines are essentially uh, computers. They were, they were um, mostly taken from designs in the, in the, 90, in the late 90s. Um, they use laptop technology. And in both cases, um, most of the machines that are in the U.S. today are um, over 10 or even 15 years old. And if you think about, you know, if you bought a, a laptop in 2003 or 2004, um, you probably wouldn't expect it to be working particularly well today. And, and um, you know, there's obviously been maintenance done on these machines, but they're across the board, whatever machine is being used, for the most part, they're getting dangerously close to the end of their lifespans if they haven't already kind of passed what their projected lifespans are. Every presidential election, every major election cycle, you hear and read about all of the thousands and thousands of reports of problems with different types of voting machines. And, you know, in my mind, I would love to imagine that, oh, after the election's done, all of these reports are looked at very closely and every machine involved is analyzed and repaired and we're really well prepared for next time and and this time everything's going to go smoothly is that a total fantasy like what actually happens in the period between elections with these machines it depends so you know what you're describing i i can't say that there are um one thing to remember about american elections is they're incredibly decentralized so you really for the most part they're being run at the county and sometimes even at the town level so there are counties that uh, we spoke to in, in putting together this report where they actually are um, very on top of things and particularly where the machines are older, they're looking at the kinds of problems that they have uh, af after each election, um, trying to diagnose them and figure out what needs to be done to maintain and repair them. Uh, but I would say probably for the most part that's that's not true. Uh, and, and certainly uh, there needs to be more sharing of information. So I'll give you an example. One of the things that um, that we've seen with the DRE machines that has happened in some places uh, is, and this might sound kind of hard to believe, but the, the, uh, the glue between, and this just happens with age, the glue between the screen and the machine has uh, started to degrade. And that can create all kinds of problems. People, uh, in particular, a big problem that happens is that um, 
there's what's called vote flipping. People intend to vote for, let's say, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney shows up on the screen. Which, which specifically famously happened. Uh, there's that video from Pennsylvania, I believe it was, where that, where that took place. It's, it's happened, it's happened in many places. Uh, and it's going to happen more often, uh, as these machines age. Um, it may start happening first in one county in Pennsylvania, but uh, a county in Alabama or Arizona may be using those machines too, and maybe they got them a year or two later. Um, they need to be made aware that these kinds of things are going to start happening more often, even if they haven't happened yet in those places. So that kind of information sharing, I would say, unfortunately, doesn't happen nearly as much as it should. So 2016 is coming up. Uh, you, you mentioned generally that every election, the machines are older. So obviously mm-hmm. that every with every successive election cycle, that can become more of an acute problem. Is there yes. anything specific other than just the general aging of the machines that you're looking at now for 2016? Well, I, I think the big thing that it's too late, frankly, for most places to replace their equipment. So okay, the that was going to be the next question, which is whether it's even a, an academic issue at this point or a realistic one. It is. I mean, look, some places are planning to replace their machines for 2016, but those plans were well underway. Um, you, you know, you don't, it's not, not a good idea uh, in general to, to kind of rush into purchasing new equipment and try to implement it before the biggest election uh, that occurs every four years. Um, so some, a, a few places, Maryland, uh, is going to be replacing machines for 2016. Um, some other smaller jurisdictions, the state of Michigan may be replacing some of them in many, many places. But for the most part, we're not going to see new machines. Um, so then the question is, what can be done uh, to minimize problems? In, in 2012, um, according to a study from uh, MIT and Harvard, um, between 500 and 700,000 votes were lost because of long lines. Some of that is related to machines failing on Election Day. So uh, I, the, my biggest concern is making sure uh, that uh, jurisdictions are aware of the kinds of problems that can occur as these machines age, and they have plans in place for dealing with them to minimize the problems, because they're going to happen. And as you said, the machines are now four years older than they were in 2012. So we're going to see more of this. Last thing I want to touch on, you uh, if you search on YouTube, for example, you'll find all sorts of videos uh, uh, purporting to be very uh, uh, grounded explanations or demonstrations of how easy it is to hack electronic voting machines. Talk a little bit about that. Is that really a fear, the idea that a county employee, for example, could just go in and delete the real number of votes for a particular candidate and put in whatever number they want? How how realistic is that and how likely is it someone, if they tried to do it, could actually get away with it? Well, uh In some sense, there's truth in that. Uh, All of these systems run on software. You can manipulate software if you have access to to machines. I think the good news is that um, most voting systems in the United States today have a paper record of of how the voter voted. Um, They can be used to check whatever results the software is telling you um, are the results. Um, And a lot of places now do... um, conduct those audits. I do think that there are, you know, and I, I'm not alone in thinking this, I think most people think this, um, with the older machines, there are greater security risks. So we saw in Virginia, um, 
there was a state investigation done into a, a certain kind of machine that was used. It was an older machine. It had a wireless capabilities on the machine. Um, it was used in about 24% of the precincts in the state. They found that somebody could, you know, using an iPhone could uh, hack into machines, change vote totals. They decertified those machines. Um, there are machines that are running on Windows 2000, Windows XP, which aren't ser- serviced anymore. There are no security patches for those systems. Those probably have more security vulnerabilities. Um, that doesn't mean that um, those systems are going to be manipulated. Again, there are lots of checks um, that we can do to make sure that the, the machines are giving us accurate tal- tallies, particularly when there's a paper record of the vote. Um, but, uh, you know, the older these machines get, um, the more likely you're going to have problems and anything that could be done, you know, anything that's a security risk um, in terms of malicious behavior is also a risk for just uh, failures. Um, so I would say the big thing is, number one, make sure that we have all the proper uh, procedures in place um, to be checking that these totals are accurate for whether it's for uh, a, 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 an accidental failure or, or some kind of malicious behavior and secondly eventually we're, we just need to replace these systems I think that we all feel the same we're tired of these games we know cause we all feel the pain to feel and act is not the same we You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, democracy awakening, nationwide mobilization to protect the vote. The 20th century was all about seeing barriers to citizens' voting rights being knocked down, but so far the 21st century has been all about putting them back up. This country is now blatantly suppressing the voting rights of people of color, seniors, students, the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated, and low-income Americans, and has stripped any remaining power from those who actually can exercise their vote, thanks to big money, of course. If we want to change the course of this country, then we have to demand action now. This April 16th to 18th, join Democracy Awakening 2016. Are you sick and tired of your rights being taken away? It's time to mobilize and take them back. This April, we'll converge on state capitals and our nation's capital to demand a real democracy where government serves all Americans, not just wealthy interests. America was founded to create a democracy for all. But since the very beginning, we've had to fight for our voices to be heard and for all votes to be counted. From women's suffrage to the civil rights movement to farm worker registration drives, Americans have come together to tear down the barriers preventing us from electing politicians who represent us. And it's even harder than ever for average Americans to get elected to office. In 2014, winning Senate campaigns cost an average of over $8 million, meaning most of us are excluded from having a fair shot at ever getting into office. That's why it's time for us to fight back on a scale that's never been done before. Together, we're going to build a government that is truly of, by, and for the people. Sign up, share, fight back.
Democracy Awakening is coordinating an array of actions, including demonstrations, teach-ins, direct action trainings, music, a rally for democracy, and pressing for a Congress of Conscience through nonviolent direct action and advocacy. Your actions will support reform measures to restore previously struck down protections against voting discrimination, update the Voting Rights Act of 1965, modernize voter registration and prevent deceptive practices keeping people from voting, just to name a few. You will also be fighting for the Democracy for All Amendment, a constitutional amendment to overturn Supreme Court decisions like Citizens United and allow elected representatives to set common sense limits on money in elections. Sign up to take part in and or volunteer for this nationwide mobilization at democracyawakening.org. Fighting for every voice to be heard and every vote to be counted is as American as apple pie, so don't get complacent, get angry, and get your voice back. Remember, it's only a democracy if it works for everyone. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. We are finally in an election year, so for our main story tonight, let's look at voting, the cornerstone of American democracy, the unshakable principle that everyone should have an equal vote, even idiots, <laughs> even this guy. Go. <laughs> now, I know it's painful, but his vote should count as much as yours. It should count as much as the president's, that's what America is all about. Now, in recent years, some states have made voting easier. Uh, for instance, three states now hold their elections almost entirely by mail, and 30 states plus D.C. now let you register to vote online. Sadly, others have gone in the opposite direction, because depending on who you are and where you live, you may face new obstacles to voting this November, thanks to, among other things, the Supreme Court's decision to weaken the Voting Rights Act. For instance, since 2011... Seven states have curtailed early voting, and 13 have added requirements that voters show some kind of ID at the polls. And the lawmakers pushing those voter ID laws claim that they are just simple, common-sense measures. It is common sense that you would use picture ID to protect the integrity of the voting process. It's an ID. Everyone has an ID. The people that are homeless, the people that go to vote, they get sick, they go to the hospital, they buy they buy stuff. They need IDs. I'm proud that North Carolina has joined the 34 other states to enact a common sense voter ID law that, that uh, is, isn't going to impact a significant amount of North Carolinians. Oh, it's not going to impact a significant number of North Carolinians. Well, that's fine. Although, uh, by that standard, you could also say we're going to incinerate everyone named Warren. That's, that's not a significant number of people, but you are going to have a pretty justifiably upset Warren Beatty on your hands. That law is significant to him. Because not everyone actually does have ID. In Texas alone, at least half a million registered voters do not have the form of ID necessary to vote. North Carolina and Wisconsin have roughly 300,000 voters apiece with neither a driver's license nor a state ID. And in Virginia, an estimated 200,000 voters may not have one. And if you think about it, you probably know at least one person who doesn't have an ID, whether it's your grandma who had her license taken away, uh, your recluse uncle who rollerblades everywhere, 
or your cousin who lost his license after his third DUI. Come on, Jace, you can't fool a breathalyzer by whispering the word sober into it. <laughs> and, and even if you try to obtain an ID just in order to vote, it can be difficult. Listen to what a Pennsylvania woman went through when her state's ID law was in effect. 68-year-old Doris Clark was turned down three times applying for her Pennsylvania voter ID card. And every time, she says, the state wanted another document, original birth certificate, original social security card. Then she needed her husband's death certificate when a clerk demanded proof of her married name. You feel like, why am I going through all these things? I'm not Bin Laden's wife. Bin Laden's wife? That is a strange way to frame it. Why not say Osama Bin Laden was Amal al-Sadar's husband? Or Siham Sabah's husband? Or Korea Sabah's husband? Hashtag Osama Bin Laden, hashtag feminism. <laughs> and yet, and yet, none of these difficulties seem to trouble legislators like Wisconsin's Joel Clayfish, who argued for a strict ID law by pointing out his state's photo ID requirement to buy Sudafed. I find it frustrating that so many of the same people who today are telling us that a photo ID is just too gosh darn much to maintain the integrity of the ballot and those same people two sessions ago made sure those same people many of the same people in this room made sure two sessions ago that you had to have a photo id to buy stuffy nose medicine okay okay <laughs> couple of things there first that bill was designed to help curtail wisconsin's meth problem and, and second voting is a right if you take it away you ruin democracy if you take away someone's Sudafed, the only thing you'll ruin is their sleeve. And, and in some parts of the country, the offices that issue IDs are hardly ever open. In 2012, a study found that in Wisconsin, Alabama, and Mississippi, fewer than half of all ID-issuing offices in the state are open five days a week. And in Sauk City, Wisconsin, just a few districts over from where that business casual Kevin Smith lives, <laughs> the ID office is only open on the fifth Wednesday of every month, and only four months in 2016 even have five Wednesdays. Oh, but don't worry, there's a rhyme. Uh, March, June, August, November have five Wednesdays. But remember, if you come on days not those, f*** yourself, they're f***ing closed. Every first grader in Wisconsin gets taught that one. You should also mention that, that studies have shown these restrictions tend to disproportionately impact African-American and Latino voters. In Texas, for instance, experts found that African-American voters were nearly twice as likely to lack voter ID, and Latinos were nearly two and a half times as likely. It's just one of those things that white people seem to be more likely to have, like a sunburn or an Oscar nomination. So, so what, why are we doing this? Well, if you listen to the legislators who help pass these laws, they'll say that they are necessary to prevent fraud. Here is a co-sponsor of Texas's voter ID law, Debbie Riddle. The very freedom of our nation is based on the integrity of our ballot box. And if things are so lax that, that fraudulent voting can, can occur, that means your vote can be stolen. And simply showing an identification is not too much to ask. Are you sure about that, though? 
Don't eat fish on the subway is not too much to ask. Never start a Facebook status with that moment when is not too much to ask. Requiring ID can actually be asking a lot. And, and as for fraudulent elections, well, let's look at that for a moment. Because while American history is littered with vote buying, vote tampering and ballot box stuffing, voter ID doesn't prevent those crimes. The only crime it prevents is voter impersonation. One person showing up to the polls pretending to be someone they're not. Which is a pretty stupid crime. Because you have to stand in line at a polling place and risk five years in prison and a $10,000 fine, all to cast one, probably not consequential, extra vote. In terms of pointless crimes, it's right up there with forging a Bed Bath & Beyond coupon. It's a lot of trouble with low reward. And yet, people insist that this happens a lot. Without photo ID, what do you fear could happen? Well, without photo ID, I mean, let's be clear, I don't want dead people voting in the state of South Carolina. I've said that from the very beginning. And authorities say there is evidence that dead people voting is a real problem, according to a statewide investigation by South Carolina's Department of Motor Vehicles. In January, it found that 953 ballots were cast by voters who were deceased. Now, that's true. The DMV did say that. And the study caused such a stir that one lawmaker stated, we must have certainty in South Carolina that zombies aren't voting. And look, he's right. He's right. No one wants that, except possibly for upstart candidate Philip Brains. But, but when the state's law enforcement division investigated the DMV's claims, it found no real basis for them. In fact, of the prior election's 207 suspicious ballots, 92 of them were cases where someone had the same name as a deceased voter, usually a father and son. 56 of them were cases where the social security number of a living voter was mistakenly matched with a dead person. 32 were simply scanner errors. Uh, one person requested an absentee ballot, completed it, and then died while it was in the mail. And, and most of the others were an array of random clerical errors. Altogether, the investigation found five ballots that could not be accounted for. This is an election where more than 1.3 million votes were cast. These voter ID laws are the biggest overreaction to a manageable problem since Sleeping Beauty's father ordered all the spinning wheels in the lands to be burnt. This is an agrarian economy. We need those wheels. Why don't you just watch your daughter for literally one day in her f***ing life? One day! One day! The, the truth here is, voter impersonation fraud is incredibly rare. One researcher who tracked it closely found that from 2000 to 2014, there were 31 possible incidents in the entire country, out of over a billion ballots cast. Voter, voter fraud is a problem the way that deadly knife play from crabs is a problem. <laughs> I'm not saying it doesn't exist. There are cases where it has happened. But let's not overreact to one stabby crab. <laughs> but, but these laws do actually tend to make a little more sense whenever you see someone slip up and suggest other reasons for why they may support them. Voter ID, which is going to allow Governor Romney to win the state of Pennsylvania, done. Do you think all the attention drawn to voter ID affected last year's elections? Uh, yeah, I think a little bit. I think we, I, we probably had a better election. Think about this. Uh, we cut Obama by 5%, uh, which was big. You know, a lot of people lost sight of that. He, he won. He beat McCain by 10%, and he beat uh, Romney by 5%. I think that probably photo ID had a, a, helped a bit in that. Oh, no! 
you're saying the thing that everyone knows, but you're not supposed to say out loud. That's like writing, I'm desperate to bone on an online dating profile, or a band calling their reunion tour, we ran out of money. But, but perhaps the most galling thing here is that there, there are actual cases of voter impersonation caught on camera, and you will never believe where they happen. This is State Representative Debbie Riddle. She authored the bill that would require voters to show a photo ID. Clerk, bring the bell. It's a record vote. It's all about integrity. Record vote. But the integrity of one person, one vote doesn't apply at the legislature. We found many lawmakers vote more than once. Take a look. Riddle votes, turns around, votes again for State Rep Kimple. Rewind. And watch the men on the screen. Elkins goes to vote for Merritt, but Hancock is faster. Elkins heads back to his desk, but before he can vote, Joe Crabb turns around and beats him to it. Holy shit! They are literally competing to press other people's voting buttons. And remember, this is Texas, which has the strictest ID laws in the country. And apparently this process is called ghost voting. And it happens in state legislatures all over the country. And sometimes they involve literal ghost votes. One lawmaker in Texas died and was recorded voting three times later that day. Which is clearly ridiculous. A real ghost wouldn't waste its time voting on bills. It would be out terrorizing a young family in their new house. Or trying desperately to bang Demi Moore on a pottery wheel one last time. And, and Debbie Riddle is not the only voter ID proponent who has done this. Remember Wisconsin's Joel Clayfish? I mean, there is, there is no way that he got caught doing it, right? A cell phone video posted online shows Clayfish placing a vote for an absent assembly member. Clayfish says the online video is an attempt at character assassination. Uh, no, 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 no. That's not character assassination. It's unedited footage of something you obviously did. If anything, that is character autoerotic asphyxiation. And, and lawmaker, lawmakers in Tennessee are so shameless about this, they've got the whole thing down to a fine art. It's such a common practice in the House, in fact, that many lawmakers have sticks they use to reach each other's voting buttons. Look, if you are going to pervert democracy, could you at least do it with a less creepy stick? <laughs> that looks like what an evil leprechaun would use to beat a child. And yet, whenever legislators like Debbie Riddle are asked about this actual voter impersonation, they say they've done nothing wrong and are only acting out of necessity. We have a lot of votes. We have a lot of amendments. And there's times when we don't break for lunch and we don't break for dinner. We don't have bathroom breaks. Okay, well, quick suggestion. Have you considered getting some extra long voting sticks? They tend to help. <laughs> you know what? At this point, I would like to propose something. Any politician who has ever supported an unnecessary voter ID law should be forced to obtain a new ID every single time they want to pass a bill, just to make sure they are who they say they are. And yes, they might say, well, John, that's ridiculous. There is no real reason to make us do that, and it's so cumbersome, it could prevent us from engaging in the democratic process. To which I would say, welcome to the f***ing club.
We just heard clips featuring open primaries with a new recommendation on how to run our elections. Talk Poverty Radio spoke with Michelle Jawando about the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Decode DC took a look at an example of gerrymandering going on in South Carolina. Democracy Now! spoke with Ari Berman talking about the 16 states that are facing new voting restrictions in the first election in 50 years without the Voting Rights Act. David Pakman spoke with Lawrence Norden about the myriad problems with our electronic voting machines. Our activism for today is for democracyawakening.org. It's happening all across the country this April. And finally, John Oliver on Last Week Tonight wrapped up with his take on our new voter ID laws. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. This is Rick from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Just finished listening to the episode on dark money and wanted to call the share a couple quick thoughts that I had while listening to uh, the voicemail on gentrification. First thought was when he mentioned how people are afraid of the government coming in to clean up their sidewalks, you know, as, as they will raise the value too much and, you know, force them out of the areas that they currently live in, it gets too nice. And it, it really hit home to me as, as one of a larger group of certain key areas where we've tried to force the ideas of capitalism into, well, not even force them, they just sort of take over, but that they really don't work. Uh, healthcare is a big one that, you know, it's kind of a very obvious one where, uh, you know, profiting off of people's health, uh, you know, is terrible. Uh, but it really weighs heavily on the poor in the country. And it, it serves as a way to keep those people there. And there's a lot of these mechanisms. Another one is, is like we're talking about with this area here. People's living situation plays a big role in, in their whole life. You know, how, how they're able to get up and go into work, you know, get a good job, uh, feel safe, be able to live in a nice, you know, neighborhood can ease a lot of the other constraints of poverty and, and help really lift someone out and allow them to, you know, make something more of, of their life. And, you know, I, I just wanted to bring that up as it just crossed my mind as, as another one of those elements where essentially capitalism in, in society it doesn't work in some areas. And if anyone has any other comments on that, it'd be interesting to hear. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, my name is Megan. I'm actually located in the southeastern United States in North Carolina. I uh, have been listening to the show for a little while. Specifically, the one the show that's moved me most so far was last week's episode about post-scarcity economics and um, uh, talking about the advancements of technology. And, you know, I'm, I'm young. I'm 22. I'm in college, and I've kind of been in between trying to figure out what I want to do with my life and school and um, I've been feeling like I have a, a place in politics, and this episode, I think, has solidified that I, it's no longer a choice for me, and that I have a, a very serious moral obligation, almost a, a humanitarian contract for the protection of people who uh, don't understand the impact of big business and opportunities that will be taken away as a result of technological advancements. But it's so it was such a fascinating podcast episode and I'm so grateful that you covered it. I consider myself almost a Marxist in some ways and 
to, to hear something like that was uh, very scary to consider that without the proper people coming into legislation in the next, you know, 20 to 100 years, that post-scarcity economics could either be a really good thing or it could be a really bad thing. And the fact of the matter is that societal trends have to start shifting and um, we have to start becoming a population that's intended to um, live our lives as actual humans. And, it, you know, the, the idea that post-scarcity economics could open up a, a life of um, living your life to be, you know, in, in pursuit of experiences and happiness and instead of living to work and working to live, I, I'm on the side that that definitely plans to, to fight for our rights to do so and uh, towards, you know, most socialism environment and single-payer health care and things that will allow us to live in, in a technological technologically advanced world happily without fear of when we're going to eat next. So um, you know, I'm really looking forward to really, really dig into a career in politics. And I, I just want to thank you so much, Dave, for covering this topic. And I, it's just further solidified how I feel and where I want to go. And I, I just can't thank you enough. Um, so thank you so much for what you do. And I will continue to support and listen to the show. Hey, Jay. It's Anthony from Illinois. Um, I'm calling in to respond to Trey, and I apologize if anything that I say is kind of a oversimplification of what you said. But I don't think the issue of people being offended um, is part of the issue when talking about causes. I think what the important thing is is keeping in mind how we communicate, but also how each of us responds to an issue. You know, I think often when we hear people saying, oh, don't be offended, don't be this, don't be that, I think People want to think of it more simplified and want to reduce emotions and reduce the human persons out of situations without actually considering, as you know, you said, and I think others are aware, that these issues that we're often responding to are situations that are influenced and harm human beings. There are ways that you know we should all communicate more efficiently. But I think there's a balance that needs to be struck before, you know, just screaming at someone without actually hearing their point of view. But I think it's just as wrong to have a knee-jerk reaction and say, well, don't be offended. I think it's poor communication on both ends to assume that, A, either we know what someone is going to be saying or that we know how someone's going to respond to something. I just think that, like you said, I think trade to the larger point, missed a lot of the point of, you know, why people respond in the way that they do to things. But also at the same time, I think that it just kind of shows how multifaceted this approach needs to be and how we really need to become more civil and understanding in our dialogue, even with people we don't agree with. Thanks for doing so much with the show and providing us the opportunity to leave our feedback like this. Have a great day. Bye. Hi, Jay. It's Ronald from Baltimore. I just finished your episode on encryption and Apple computer versus the FBI, and I think something was left out or not mentioned. Frankly, I'm a little surprised you didn't pick up on it and highlight it, although it was hanging around in the air the whole time. This hurts their business model. So this is where Apple's true motives for opposing the FBI demands come in. Apple will never sell another iPhone at home or abroad once it becomes known that the U.S. government can hack into it at will. People will buy foreign-made phones that have U.S.-proof encryption. I hope Apple prevails in this fight, and not because I'm a customer, 
There are other ways to make us safe that don't destroy the very rights the government is empowered to protect. As the saying goes, if the camel once gets its nose in the tent, his body will soon follow. Thanks for listening, and keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Today, just a quick response to Ronald from Baltimore about Apple and the FBI and encryption and so on and so on. And, and first, the, the real quick answer is that the confluence between Apple's stance on encryption and their business model was not lost on me. I, I'm certainly familiar with that. Also, I did hear at least one clip that brought that up as a topic of conversation. But to be honest, not many people did. It, it was sort of ignored by most. And unfortunately, the one clip I heard came to a conclusion I found very, very unconvincing, which is why it didn't make it onto my show. Uh, the clip I'm talking about is from On the Media, February 26th. The clip's titled Just Apple versus the FBI. And they frame the entire conversation as, well, this case is being presented by the media, etc., as lofty principles of privacy versus national security. But could it just be self-interest and, you know, the, the future evolution of where this case would go and the future of the self-interest of the parties involved. And to me, that creates a false equivalency because on one side, yes, I don't think that lofty principles of privacy are the only factor involved in Apple's decision. Obviously, it is also in their self-interest. But on the other side, the FBI's self-interest is to be able to legally collect as much information as they can and uh, have Apple do their dirty work for them and be able to break into any phone that they want to. And that's not a self-interest I have any interest in perpetuating. And so I don't think that Ronald and I are in disagreement on that. But the reason I didn't present that case is because it takes a lot of explanation to demonstrate that it is not an equivalency. Basically, in this clip on, on the media, they were saying that, hey, you know, Apple is presenting themselves as having these lofty principles, but it's really just their self-interest. And maybe FBI, the FBI is doing the same thing, but that's just in their self-interest. So, like, it's equal. But no, to me, Apple having a business model where privacy of their customers is in their own self-interest is a plus. I'm like, excellent. I'm so glad that that's Apple's business model. I'd be more worried and I would find it incredibly important to bring up if it was not in Apple's business model to maintain their customers' privacy. And yet they were presenting themselves as having lofty principles of privacy, I'd say like, huh, huh, yeah, I wonder how long that's going to last because it's going against your own business model. And so I would bring that up and hammer that home. Since that's not the case, it's sort of a non-issue. So if there had been a clip out there in which the person was saying that it's really important we protect our privacy for all of these reasons, and by the way, you know, Apple is the one defending this principle, and, you know, it's in their business model to do that, but that's sort of beside the point, 
then I would have been happy to include that in there. I just happen to think that it's beside the point. If it, if there was an internal conflict with Apple, that would be important. And if I thought that their self-interest were the only thing driving them, and you know, if, if not, if like the rest of the technological world weren't echoing their same sentiments, then I'd say, huh, like Apple seems to be going against the grain here. But it's just for their own self-interest. That's interesting. But they're going with the enormously, uh, you know, consensus perspective on, you know, digital security, technological privacy, and so forth. And it happens to be part of their business model. To, to me, like calling that out is like, you know, if if you know, food manufacturers said, you know, what we're not going to poison our food. And people are like, oh, all right, like, sure, they're not going to poison their food. But did you notice that's part of their business model? If they poison their food and it became known, that would hurt their bottom line. That's why they're not doing it. Like, yeah, I guess you're not wrong, but do you really think that's a profoundly important point to bring up? And secondly, today, just another quick reminder that I've got a new program going on with Facebook and social media in general. Uh, we're changing what we do with our Twitter and Facebook pages just a little bit. We're, we're pushing out a lot more content that's in the show already. So you as a listener, you're already familiar with the show. You're familiar with the kind of content that goes in it. And what I think the best use of our social media platforms is, is to push out this content basically to you so that you can very easily and effortlessly turn around and share it with your networks to, to spread the word even further. We've been doing this basically on the website for a long time, but I totally get it's kind of a lot of steps. You got to go to the website, you got to find the show notes page, you got to find the link to the particular clip that you want to share, and then you go and you share it on Facebook, Twitter. You know, I, I get that that's a lot of steps. So I thought, why don't we try to make this easier for people? We're going to put out more individual clips or like little quotes from the show that get a message across and, and entice people to learn more. We'll put that out on the social media feeds so that you can then quickly turn around and share it with others. So part of the strategy is I am highly encouraging you to just, just try this with me. If you're already following us on Facebook or if you're not go to the best of Life Facebook page and either, you know, like us if you haven't already, and then set the little setting after you've liked us to see our posts first. This will make it so, you know, hopefully, if it works right, that when you open up Facebook, whatever Best of Left has put out will show up at the top of your feed. So you can, oh, look, there, there's the newest clip, click, share, pass it on, and then you go on with the rest of your Facebook scrolling, 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 as we all do. Personally, I think this has great potential to help us in our mission. You know, we, we are here to promote excellent content. And so you can be part of that mission by helping spread what we are already putting out. So, you know, try this little experiment with us and let me know how it goes. Let me know your uh, experience on your end. And, you know, we'll, uh, we'll tweak and maneuver as we go. But basically, I think this is a great way for you to help us do what we do best. And if you like the show and you think it's important that this information get out there, then this is how you can help us make that happen.
Now keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show directly by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained